Welcome to If I Ran Away From You, our series on the Beatles breakup. This is episode three. We're now in the spring of 1969, and John and Paul are newlyweds. In this episode, we'll discuss the repercussions of their respective marriages on them, their partnership, and the Beatles at large. We'll also dive into the ballad of John and Yoko, tackling one of the biggest and most underexplored mysteries of Beatledom, what was the purpose of and motivation behind creating this mythology. Also, everybody please do yourselves a favor and get a flu shot. As we approach the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' breakup, one thing seems clear. Why it happened remains mysterious. It's time to revisit the evidence, pressure testing the old tropes and applying sensitivity and emotional intelligence to our analysis. Come with us on a deep, deep dive across several episodes where we unpack and examine the emotional roots of this complex topic. In a nutshell, we believe this was all a high-stakes game of chase that spun out of control. The end game was never to end the Beatles or for Lennon and McCartney to separate as a creative partnership. We don't see this as primarily a battle for dominance within the band, but rather an elaborate play for respect, love, appreciation, and commitment. Join us for this radical retelling of The Breakup. That if I ran away from you, that you would want me to. That I got a big surprise. Here's a quick recap of episode two. We discussed the first few months of 1969, the Let It Be period, through John and Paul's weddings in March. We referred to it as a do-or-die moment for John and Paul, a critical period where they were attempting to repair their partnership and find a way to work together despite the presence of new romantic partners in their lives. While the Let It Be period was ultimately successful and productive, their partnership seems to have reached an impasse. Following the weddings, we see what remains of their partnership come under attack by multiple sources, many of them external, and a battle begins between John and Paul to preserve the Beatles, each in his own way. Episode three focuses on the birth of the Ballad of John and Yoko. We'll examine its roots, creation, and purpose, and vitally, we will reconsider John's emotions during this period. The traditional story purports that the Ballad of John and Yoko destroyed the Beatles. What we are suggesting instead is that it was the collapse of Lennon-McCartney that motivated the creation of the John and Yoko ballot. Okay, so we have obsessively dug into this topic. You know, obviously we've read a ton of books from the earliest Beatles book all the way to the most recent books that have come out in the past month. And what we find is that vast majority of them vast, vast majority, all have the same story and the same arc. And there isn't really a desire to knock it down because it's the same group of men who love this story and they're gonna do everything they can to make sure this story continues. And I think that 
they honestly can't even see it a different way because they like it. You know, and the thing is, is that when we re-examine everything, you know, even though the, the majority of the books tell the same arc, when we go back to the source material, when we go back to the, the individual memoirs or their articles and interviews from the 60s or 70s, that's when we see a lot of new information and a different story emerge. So I saw uh, um, something on social media the other day where a fourth grade teacher decided that he was going to teach his class the realities of Christopher Columbus in America, right? Mm -hmm. And for the record, he used the original source material. He used Columbus's diaries. So it wasn't like he was, you know, teaching from some sort of left-wing indoctrination (laughs) pamphlet or anything. He used the actual diaries of Christopher Columbus and basically just, you know, told people how he enslaved and slaughtered all these people when he came into the country and, you know, and then he tweeted the, the written reactions of his students and how they responded to the material and just showed the sort of outrage on behalf of these, you know, nine and 10 year old kids who are like, why the fuck do we have a holiday celebrating this guy? This is insane absolutely nothing has changed about what we know about Columbus. We we have just looked at it in a different way. We just have evolved to a point where we're like, hey, you know what? Genocide's not cool. Right. I'm not saying that this is on the scale of genocide. So, you know, for, forgive the comparison. I'm just making a point that how you interpret the source material is extraordinarily important. We are coming at it from a different angle, from a different generation, from a different walk of life. And to us, it's just absolutely blatant how fucked up this story is. Right, right. And I can read the material and I can make my own assessments. Like, I can decide who I think is the bad actor in the situation. First of all, there's there's a ridiculous desire to assign a villain to all of this. You know... Historically, it was either Yoko or Paul, depending on whose side you were on, I guess. And, like, we've worked really hard to say Yoko is not the villain here. Yeah. You know, I mean, there there are some things that she did that we're critical of. Um, but she didn't break up the band. I mean, that's just stupid. It's just stupid to say that. And Paul is not the villain either. But I think, like, now it's becoming popular now to take the heat off of Yoko. Now Yoko is a saint and now it's back to blaming Paul. Right. Right. Paul had a few good years where he wasn't being blamed and Lewison was like, enough already. It's <laughs> true. It's Let's true. repoint the blame at Paul. I can't take this anymore. To be clear, I'm not I'm not saying that there is a conspiracy against Paul McCartney. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a conspiracy. It's just bias. Right, right. I mean, that's the thing is that what our point is that the narrative was created with a, a, a bias in it. It was created largely by John and Yoko and Wenner and Klein, you know, yes. 50 years ago and it continues to be repeated today. It's it's a story that the majority of the authors have bought into and they like. And then the news media just continues to repeat this story. And I think that it's like there isn't a conspiracy. It's just hard to really break a dominant narrative. But that doesn't mean that this narrative 
is correct. And, you know, we can see even with the most recent news about the tapes, how it spun. It spun to make Paul look like the bad guy. And there's lots of parts yeah. to this, the tapes information. There is a lot of ways to look at the tape information and talk about it. And it has all been spun one way, mostly driven by Mark Lewison. But it's also, I think it's the familiar story. Like it's there, it, there's confirmation bias yeah. that, that That's right. media likes to pick up and run, right? My thought before was part of the bias is that people assume that John Lennon is always being truthful and honest and like totally transparent all the time, which again is absurd. There is copious evidence to the contrary. And to, to, to ever presume that he's working on one level of just total sweetness and transparency is fucking ridiculous. I mean, you would never assume that on Paul's part either. Right. John himself has acknowledged it. Oh, yeah. John says that he says oh, things all the time. That he says one thing means another. We all say a lot of things that we don't know what we're talking about. I'm probably doing it now. I don't know what I said. You know, see, everybody takes you up on the words you said in 1940. I'm just a guy who people ask what about things. I blab off, and some of it makes sense, some of it's lies, and some of it's God knows what I'm saying, you know. Fundamentally, John is a much better storyteller when it comes to building a narrative than Paul is. He's just much, much better at it. He oh, will, my God. Like, yes. like a thousand oh times better. I, I think that the best line that John ever dropped was that Paul was a master PR person because Paul sucks at it. <laughs> First of all, he hates the press in general. He doesn't like giving interviews. He's extremely private. You know, a lot of John's weirdo stuff, it's kind of like, well, tip of the hat, sir, you know, because he's, like you said, he's a great storyteller. He does a lot of it with, like, panache. Yes. In, in an entertaining you know, has, way, yes. Exactly. Like he has a lot of charisma and they're like, don't, don't fucking tell me that John Lennon was a liar. I'm not trying to hear that shit. I think I, honestly, like, I think a lot of it is simply that yep. they're just like, nope, nope. Don't want to hear it. Yeah. Don't want to hear I it. I like that story. He was, John Lennon was a truth teller and he, you know, he took down the establishment and like he skewered phonies and that's the John Lennon I know, and you're not taking it away from me. Yeah, like over, yeah. you know, out of my cold, dead hands, you're going to pry that John <laughs> Lennon away from me. You will never take it away from us. And we're going to keep building it over and over and over and yeah. over again. They are going to do that. And I think that one of the things is like a younger student of the Beatles mm -hmm. is that there's a fundamental problem, which is what happens when you look at all the evidence and conclude, but I don't think that John Lennon is the center of the Beatles universe. That's right. That's right. It's that. And also, I don't think he's like an otherworldly, you know, like sent from outer space to enlighten the world. Like, I don't. And again, maybe that's a generational thing. I just don't think like that about any celebrity. Right. There's so much about him that is delightful and that we love. But one of the things that he does that I don't like is that he projects. Yes. Like he, because he talks so much about his own shortcomings and his own issues, they don't see that he also weaponizes all of those failures and faults in himself and projects them onto other people. Mostly Paul. Mostly Paul. But he does both at the same time. That's what that, again, I think is one of the things that's so fascinating about John. He, does a lot of this stuff at the same time. Like, I, he yes. Is, 
I mean, the thing is, he's both brilliant and has a lot of <laughs> deep-seated issues. So I think that he's doing this both consciously and subconsciously, you know? Yes. Like, he is raw and honest. He is. He is raw and honest, but he is also totally full of shit and selling you a bag of magical beans. Right. And he's hugely manipulative. And the thing is, is yes. that this has really impacted the telling of the Beatles story. You know, so many people, so many authors understand right now that Lennon Remembers is not a great source for telling the Beatles story. And yet then they use it constantly as support. And they never even question why John is so upset with Paul. I mean, that's the weird thing. Well, I think that what we've sort of determined is that the main reason for this, like, Blind spot? <laughs> cultural brainwashing yes. yeah, it was conducted via the ballad of John and Yoko. And that's what we're going to look at in this episode. Yeah, I think the fundamental question that we're asking is that why did they have to create this? What was the driver of it? And we're specifically diving into it at this period because this is when it really shifts and goes into high gear for John and Yoko. I mean, they, they started basically from the time they get together, but at this point they go into overdrive, which basically continues for the, the rest of their lives. But this is really where they take off and start to build the brand. And our perspective is that this is not just a byproduct of them being such an epic couple, but this was a campaign that they created and nurtured and supported and loved. To be clear, when we're talking about the ballad, we're not making any judgment calls about the art that John and Yoko made together, nor are we questioning the actual love between John and Yoko. Mm -hmm. You know, like we wouldn't judge their relationship if they didn't choose to put Otherwise. their relationship, make their relationship yeah. into a product and a brand and really push this product and brand. And because they've done this, we think it's fair game to look at it and look at the impact of it on both them and the Beatles and the other people that are involved in their story. One of the fundamental problems with how this story, the Beatles story, is told, is that it places John and Yoko at the center of the Lennon-McCartney relationship in the final years. And I think that's absurd. When Yoko appears, you know, everybody is dazzled and they sort of just shift the focus to John and Yoko. Now John and Yoko are at the center and Paul, in his own partnership, Paul McCartney is relegated to just like space dust while John and Yoko are now the center of the universe. And I think we are never, ever, ever going to get a realistic, accurate, or fair portrayal of the Beatles story as long as that persists. Right. As much as Yoko comes into the picture and Linda comes into the picture and they impact the situation, we think that the relationship between Lennon and McCartney remains until John dies it remains a, an ongoing concern, and, and so it needs to be examined in that context. And certainly, John and Paul are at the center of the Lennon-McCartney relationship, and they are the center of the Beatles, not Yoko Ono. With all due respect to her, she is not a Beatle, and I'm exhausted. I am exhausted reading book after book on the Beatles that 
gives her more space than Paul McCartney. 68-69, Paul is on fire creatively, and that isn't focused on. It's like John and Yoko sitting in a bag all of a sudden somehow seems to be what authors focus on instead of, hey, we happen to have this Mozart among us. Let's see what he was doing. Let's see what he was thinking and what he was developing at this time. Nope. No, let's let's look at the acorns. Yes, it like it stops becoming the Beatles story, and it starts to become the John and Yoko yeah, story. Yeah, but I think this just re- reflects how much the Beatles story is equated with John's story, and so because we don't think the Beatles story is just John's story, we think it's well, we think it's all four of their story, but primarily we think it's driven by John and Paul. That means we continue to be focused on John and Paul. You need to respect Paul. For good or bad. I'm not saying he needs to come off smelling like a rose. You can be critical of him. I'm just saying you need to show him the respect that he matters. How did this authorship manage to take the world's most successful singer-songwriter and turn him into a sidekick? And here's how unimaginative and unintelligent this authorship is. They They often are like, well, Paul said he likes to be the second fiddle, so I guess he's just the second fiddle. Okay, <laughs> but you're you're also simultaneously making the case that he's crafty, he's the smartest guy in the room, and that he's always conniving to get his way. Okay, why don't you do a little fucking math there, right. geniuses? <laughs> you know, if he's worth 85 gajillion pounds and he's weathered all measure of yeah. Setbacks and trials and tribulations. Yeah. I mean, he's Kaiser Soze. <laughs> I, you know, I think we just need to spell it out. It's always a huge mystery to me why the whole authorship thinks this guy who has managed to stay on top for 50 years in the world's most cutthroat industry and who admits he's the world's most competitive person is okay with being number two, especially professionally. I mean, no one accidentally becomes the most successful songwriter of all time. I'm saying often John and Paul are smarter than the actual authorship. Well, because yes. they're they're not critical. They don't think critically about any of this stuff. They just sort of report it and go, huh, well, we've already been supplied all the commentary. <laughs> by, so we're just gonna repeat John it here said, and stick it. Yeah. Stick a sticker on it and hopefully somebody will buy it. Uh, <laughs> and they do. They do. And like the they do. just like, oh, great, a new book. I know. And that's, that's why I find so many new books just absolutely painful. Like, absolutely painful. I will read a little bit of them and, like, <laughs> literally put down my book and, and be like, I can't do it. I can't do it. Because- it's like, it's as painful as listening to, like, a Paul McCartney interview where he's telling you how he wrote yesterday for the 50th time. <laughs> Oh my God. Well, there may not be anything as painful as that, but, <laughs> and, and the, you know, the poor, the poor interviewers that have to look surprised. Oh, <laughs> yeah. tell us about that, Paul. That's fascinating. But he, Paul has also said that he has tried to push against the narrative and it hasn't worked and it, he it has. and, and it has only come to reflect badly on him and he's given up. And well, that's so, it. It's 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 not even that people don't run with it. They pu- they viciously push back on do, him. They, they attack do. him. It's like it's like trying to argue a heliocentric view to a geocentric population. I feel like the entire Beatles authorship is so geocentric and 
just the suggestion that no, Paul's not a side thing. He's actually at the center. It, it, it's, a, it's a game changer. It is. It is what fundamentally changes the story and makes the story make a lot more sense. And we are just astounded how everybody seems to attribute John's emotions to everything in his life, except for the person that he was partners with since he was 16 and that really he created his legacy with. I mean, it's shocking to us how it's bizarre. It's bizarre. It's like, we don't even think people are trying to do that. It's just like, for some reason, there's a mental block about the fact that probably that is the relationship that is driving a lot of his behaviors and that he cares about probably as much as anything or more than anything. Well, and again, they don't, seem to have any resistance to doing this on Paul's side. No, and, and there's such inequity and imbalance in terms of how they're treated by the fandom. It's okay to assume that John is at the center of Paul's world, yet there's this unwillingness to allow Paul to be at the center of John's world. You know, there's something going on there where doing this, putting Paul at the center of John's universe, is somehow threatening. Yet much of John's behavior and comments strongly suggest this is the case. And, and, and the, thing, the frustrating thing is, is that Paul's partner was murdered and he gave a lot of interviews after that. And it drives me crazy that they never take into account that this is the context for which Paul is talking about John. So don't compare 1970 comments from John Lennon to a 1984 interview from Paul McCartney. Well, that's exactly what they do. That, I, that is precisely this, this what they do. This book that I said, saw the other day basically created a profile of Paul's opinion of John based on post-murder, the 80s, the 80s, 80s and 90s <laughs> interviews, <laughs> and compared them to yeah. Lennon Remembers. And it's like, that's just ridiculous. It is. I think authors now who tend to rely on that Lennon Remembers interview and some of the subsequent spin over the years that has been provided by John and Yoko, I think they, they selectively ignore and downplay just how important this relationship was to both John and Paul. Both John and Paul. Not Paul. Both John and Paul. And this quote from George Martin illustrates that. We talked about the row of John and Paul, but they really loved each other very much. And they stood, you know, even up to the very last moment, that there was a great love between those two men. That that uh, that we—it's very difficult to understand. They they respected each other in spite of the words that they said in public. So this trope about Paul loving John and John not giving a shit is created by writers and fans. It's a hundred percent fictional. Everyone close to John and Paul, like literally everyone, agrees that they loved each other mutually and deeply. Their wives, mm. siblings, parents, friends, colleagues, whoever. Mm. There, there's not a single person in the Beatles circle who has ever suggested otherwise. Right. And yet Beatles authors and jean jackets push this unsubstantiated crap on us all the time. It's insulting to us. It's insulting to John and Paul. And it's simply not correct because it is not corroborated by anyone in a position to know what they're talking about. If 100% of the people 
in your inner circle, including your families, insist that John and Paul love each other mutually. Yeah. Where is this coming from? You know, yeah. that it was one-sided. Where, where did it even come from? Well, as we just discussed, it's coming from authors and fans who selectively take John's bitter post-breakup spin and amplify that. And they diminish or ignore the emotion that resides behind it. And then they compare that to Paul's post-80s comments. So that's where that's coming from. And it's lazy, untrue, unfair to Paul, and simply wrong. And it's unfair to John, even. The danger is that as time moves on and all of these original people are passing away, this bullshit story that's being pushed by these authors who did not know the Beatles is just being like created, recreated, and like repackaged as a, a version that they like better. But it's not based in reality. And we think it's important to correct the story while there's still time and before the real story gets lost. Mm -hmm. And the real story, by the way, <laughs> according to everyone who actually knew them, was yeah. that there was a mutual and deep love between these two men, equal and mutual. Yes. And here is another example from somebody within the... Um, Beatles circle. This one is from Alistair Taylor, Brian Epstein's assistant in the 1960s. And he said about John and Paul, forget what happened later. At that time in the Beatles, they were closer than any two men I've ever known. John and Paul were like brothers. In fact, they were a lot closer than most brothers. John and Paul, as well as being the driving force of the group in those exciting early days, were the firmest of friends. People who talk about the early conflicts are mainly talking crap. It's Lennon who had become the most misunderstood. He could be so gentle. He was a special guy, and I suppose I always felt the most protective of him. Somehow he was more vulnerable than the others, because he did wear his heart on his sleeve sometimes. Yeah, I mean, just to repeat that, they were closer than any two men I've ever known. That's a pretty incredible statement, you know, and yeah. that's so, so gets lost in the, the telling. I mean, you know, I, I read a book recently that really didn't even acknowledge the friendship between them, which is insane. It's, it's bonkers. It's absolutely bonkers. I mean, is it it's a gaslighting? It is a gaslighting. And we're just here to shine a light back on it and say, no, the reality is that the relationship was between these two guys. This is what we need to look at. If we want to understand what happened, we need to accept the fact that statements like this exist because it's true. They were closer than any two men I've ever known. And interestingly, he says, it's Lenin who has become the most misunderstood. And again, that's what we're attempting to do is to revisit, you know, John's emotional landscape based on things that he actually said rather than author spin. Because John has been spun both to be more of a saint than he was and more of an asshole than he was. And yeah, yeah. in his breakup period, he's kind of, while he comes off as decisive and, 
he also comes off sometimes as a bit of an asshole because he's not allowed, as we've discussed, he's not allowed to have real feelings. And so it's good to remember the fact that this is just the misunderstood John. Listen to what he said, you know, and how people describe him. He was more vulnerable and he wore his heart on his sleeve sometimes. And so that's that's what we believe that he was like yeah. a lot of the time in 1969. Well, Alistair says he was somehow, he was more vulnerable than the others. This is a guy, by the way, who Paul McCartney showed showed up to his house and cried on this guy's shoulder multiple times in 1968 after Jane left him. So Alistair Taylor is aware of how sensitive Paul is. Yes, Alistair Taylor has seen, yes, has seen Paul like come in and cry to him. And he still thinks that John is more vulnerable. Alistair even makes the point that like he didn't want the other Beatles to see him like that. Meaning Paul didn't wear his heart on his sleeve. Paul found a safe place where he could unload that and then and then, you know, pulled it together and walked out and like pretended everything was cool. I get so I think, you know, again, it's like I think people get the impression because of the way that the Paul talks about John after his death, people get the impression that Paul's just like writing John love letters and, you know, bringing him flowers and begging him to stay like in the late 60s and it's that that's not realistic right and, and more critically it's not the full story so by ignoring the full evidence we just end up with this incorrect version that keeps repeating now and it's simply not true so yeah. it, it we're not saying that paul is the innocent in this in this situation it's not that paul is right and john is wrong we're not right. saying that we're we're making the point that john is at least as invested as Paul mm -hmm. and that he cares just as much and is equally as emotional about this relationship, if not even more. A lot of the sympathy goes to Paul, you know, as we've just discussed that he's the one that's positioned as hurt and vulnerable. Whereas realistically people around them continually hit on the same point that it was John who was the most vulnerable. I mean, Alistair also does say that he was not a saint uh, and that, you know, he could be brutal yeah. too. So it's not like that's the only side of John, but he says that there was this side that exists and fundamentally he still was the most vulnerable. So if you're talking about like why the Beatles broke up, nobody's questioning, you know, the dates and like the events that happened. We know all that shit. We've known it. We've known it. For 50 years. None of yeah. that is changing. We know the history of what happened. Right. Well, I mean, the dates The dates are helpful because, and especially because, you know, Beatles' re research and history has been done really badly. So it's really great to have somebody actually tracking down Absolutely. those dates for real so that we can actually base our, our knowledge on something. However, understanding and putting together what those things mean is a totally different skill set. The question is, has to be, why did it happen? Right. Why? So we know that after the weddings, John goes full force into building the John and Yoko brand. And we think that part of the reason that he embraced this so aggressively and wholeheartedly was because he needed a coping mechanism to deal with the fallout of the impending loss of Paul as a partner and as a friend. 
that this is his way of distracting himself from the trauma of the Lennon-McCartney relationship crumbling, which, you know, to him is probably looking more and more likely. And what it does is it ensures that he has a place to land, you know, a future, a new dream, you know, that he is not going to be abandoned and alone, that he has somewhere to go. You know, people freely discuss and romanticize and exaggerate and even mythologize Paul's loss of John at this time and his depression following the breakup. And they continually perpetuate the story that John was liberated by the breakup, despite the fact that John basically institutionalizes himself within a couple of months after Paul leaves in April. Yeah. Right. And it's kind of how John spins it also, because yeah. he's doesn't, I mean, he's terrified of looking dumped, right? Mm-hmm. It's never going to, never going to happen to him. No. So. No, the idea that he'd be left or dumped is just something that he will not allow to happen or to that's be right. acknowledged. That's right. I legit think that at some point he goes, fuck that i am not going out like that right you know and that's I, not going to be my story my story is that i fell in love with a brilliant artist who was so wonderful that i had to leave the beatles that's what's going to happen and that's what you're going to write and i'm going to fucking tell you exactly how to write it and they do right yeah <laughs> i mean yeah, it's a better I mean, story it's a story that everybody likes because john gets you know he comes out the hero on top of it and he gets to be the one in power and he gets to be the one in charge and the one who's rejecting Paul, you know, because yeah. nobody likes that story. No one likes the story of John being rejected. Like nobody no. can handle that, including no. John. Right. So he's like, that is not going to be the fucking story. No. He had this happen once. He is not going to let it happen again in his life, especially with somebody that he really loves. He is not going to be left by somebody he loves. He's going to recreate a new story. Yes. It's preferable, right? Yeah. And he's going to, and he's going to get out before the ax falls. And like, if you look at it from his point, it's like his main goal at all times is going to try to be to avoid being hurt. Looking bad. Looking, looking bad, looking like he's been abandoned in some ways and leaving before he's abandoned. Because I think that well, then well, he can tell himself that I yeah. left first, you know, it's kind of like yes. what he needs to, to be able to tell himself. Yeah. Well, if if the story comes out that he's, you know, if the story is ever that he didn't want out, you know, and that shit didn't work out for him, it's just going to it's going to compound his shame and embarrassment over the whole situation. So it's going to become intolerable. But I think it's interesting that he he's he creates this story for the public. And I think it's partly for himself. Again, I think that that is his coping mechanism is to convince himself it gave him, like, it wasn't just him building this fake story. Right. It was his need yes. to create something that gave him a new purpose. For and sure. I think that that's why he sells this so fucking hard. He know? has to believe it. He's he got to believe it. Right. And then he has to deal with just the trauma of the situation and, and you know, what he would probably yes. feel like as an abandonment. Yes. Uh, of and the destruction and of their band. And feeling like it's his fault. Like he did it because he's eventually going to drive Paul away 
And Paul right. doesn't really want him or love him because right. essentially he's unlovable. Yeah. I mean, we're deeply getting into uh, John's psychology, but that hasn't stopped anyone else b before. And certainly no. we do know that the abandonment issue is an issue. And just to remind everyone that we're not going overboard here with, you know, this level of emotion in this is the reality. This um, depth of feeling was supported by everyone around them. Everyone in their lives. You know, for example, this is Tony Barrow talking about John and Paul. He said, they loved each other more than most couples do. And when they split, it was more wrenching than most divorces. And the, the thing is that John's behavior has never been recognized for two reasons. One is because John hasn't been allowed to have a myriad of emotions in this uh -huh. year. It's always assumed that he's detached, disinterested mm -hmm. or angry that's sort right. of the limit of his emotional range that's or horny for yoko it. or horny <laughs> so so he's allowed this range of emotions but nothing else and two you know there's this assumption that john was done in the fall and you know he was so checked out that he just wanted the divorce and like you know right was emotionally done the more that we saw john's own language the more we realized that this was a very, very emotional time for him. And there's a different story there. Okay, on the subject of John's emotions and how they are often misrepresented, I was listening to a lecture given by a very intelligent Beatles author the other day. And the story was being told of the Eleanor Rigby authorship dispute and John's recollection of this, the songwriting session, when Paul came to his house, uh, presumably in 1966, um, for a songwriting session, and uh, George and Ringo and Pete Shodden, they were also there. And the, the, everybody sort of joined in kind of on the songwriting session. So like Paul went over, played the song for John and for the rest of the guys. And, you know, was just sort of showing off how, like the, the what state the song was in. Right, because he had been writing it for a long time, over over many months. So then everybody was sort of chiming in with their thoughts on the lyrics and like throwing out ideas and you know sort of soundboarding. And, and John got very upset about it and was sort of sulking in the corner, getting getting more and more uh, worked up until. He explodes at Pete Shotton, like Pete makes a suggestion, and John's like, shut the fuck up, Pete, what do you know? You don't know shit about songwriting, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Pete's like, what the hell? And, and he leaves, and that's the end of the session, like everybody scatters at that point. But um, John holds a grudge about it, and, you know, is, is nursing this, you know, this hurt for 15 years, and he tells the story in 1980 in the Playboy interview. And he tells a reporter, I was hurt and insulted that Paul just like threw it out to whoever was in the room. Like I wasn't even important. As if I, he didn't know he was supposed to come to me, which he did, you know, but instead of saying to me, John, I want you to help me with this song. He just acted like I wasn't even important. And then he, he later complains that Paul is insensitive 
So these are the words that John uses. I was hurt. I was insulted. And Paul is insensitive. And yet, when this author was telling the story, the word used was anger. John was angry over this songwriting session. And it just was kind of upsetting to me because even when John literally describes his emotions as hurt, even when he admits that he like he was in a vulnerable spot and it, and he's he still has this hurt 15 years later he's still described as being angry right and i think this is important to talk about because in the breakup scenario and post breakup john is always characterized as angry is either indifferent or as angry and you know maybe looking down on Paul, but they never actually describe him as hurt, which is very different because, as you said, it it puts him into a very vulnerable position. And that is Mm -hmm. continually how John Lennon describes himself as he's, he is vulnerable and he is being hurt Mm -hmm. in these situations And that is something that we think is absolutely missing from the analysis of the breakup is empathizing with John as somebody who's feeling vulnerable and hurt and like he's being acted upon. I mean, a lot of John's behavior in the latter part of the year comes across as very aggressive, Yeah, you know, and, and is in a lot of ways, like, like a lot of it is aggressive and you know manipulative and if you don't think that John loves Paul if you if you think that Paul is nothing but an adversary to John yeah you know, <laughs> like rather than his best friend in the whole world like yeah you can read it as well, Lennon was just disgusted by McCartney and just like acting this way because he's an awful person and was just being mean right Whereas we know that John continually positions himself as being hurt. And if you look at it through that lens, then his actions seem very different. Yes. And that doesn't mean that he didn't act in ways that weren't hurtful or or mean even. Yeah. You know, he could be mean and he could have been being mean on purpose. <laughs> like we're, we're not saying that that's not the case. Right. We're just trying to understand what his motives might've been. And we actually spent some time looking at John's words that he repeats constantly that he was hurt, that he felt insecure, that he was nervous, that he was scared. Uh, you know, those are all words that John uses. And yet that's not how he's described by authors. So this um, positioning is not one that John himself does. It's one that authors ascribe to him. And so if you if you think that John Lennon is always powerful, always in control, and he is always being aggressive just because he's such a powerful macho alpha male that he can't help himself, and he needs to just push McCartney around because McCartney is just... Just like a, just like weak and soft, then you're 
probably going to assume that John was totally in control, coherent and decisive, and he right. knew what he you, wanted. You read, that, was, you read that into his actions too, right? Right, right, right. Which we definitely don't think is the case. And again, to go back to John's own words, you know, we can hear it with our ears. He yeah. says to Paul, you know, a few months earlier in the Let It Be sessions, he says that, like, for me to come back and work with you, I have to swallow my ego and smother my jealousy for you, which means, you know, being with Paul causes John to have jealousy and threatens his ego. You know, like, Paul is right. definitely competing and bringing a lot to the table. It does not mean right. he thinks that Paul sucks and is weak. So the point of all this discussion is that we think reframing and really empathizing with John's position and how he describes himself tells a different story about this whole breakup period. And it's really, really, really important. Right. Because we think fundamentally it's much more complicated than it appears sometimes on the surface. One of the reasons that we want to distinguish the anger from the hurt is we think that hurt is actually a driving factor, a motivating factor in 69 for John. We know that Yoko said that nobody had ever hurt John like Paul did. And so clearly Paul has the ability to be hurting John. Yeah, by describing John, by describing John as being like angry, you make him powerful. Yeah. And by making Paul always hurt, it's like he's acted upon. Mm-hmm. I, I just want to read a Philip Norman's postscript, the- I guess, to shout. He says, Yet even John's resentment over Paul announcing the breakup first does not explain his later remark to Yoko that no one had ever hurt him the way Paul hurt him. It almost suggests that deep beneath the schoolboy friendship and the complimentary musical brilliance, lay some streak of a homosexual adoration that John himself never realized. He might have longed to get away from Paul, but he could never quite get over him. Hmm. Which, you know, I mean, this is Norman's take. And apparently it predates Yoko's uh, revelation from 2008 about the contemplated affair. So I guess this is Norman's initial impression from the 80s. And... He says it kind of awkwardly, like with the yeah. homosexual adoration is kind of a <laughs> yeah, weird like, way to say. Like that is, a, yeah, that is not even a term, but okay. Yeah, I guess by homosexual adoration you mean adoration. Yeah, I think he's saying like it was an unrecognized Which uh, this certain- a- attraction and and love for Paul. Right, 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 and that he never quite got over him, which is something I definitely do believe, actually. Well, I do. That's what I found interesting about that that paragraph is that we do see that twin desire. I think from the minute they get married, well, maybe even when he, maybe a little even earlier than that, that there seems to be this like desire for him to flee Paul and like inability to leave him because yes. he doesn't he want loves to leave him because yeah. he loves him. Yeah, and so you see this constant tension. You know, there's something that is unsatisfying about the the situation to John, so he may want to leave it, but yet at the same time, he so desperately wants to be there. You know, I think you could say he might have longed to get over Paul, 
I mean, I don't think it's that he, I don't think he, he longed to get away from Paul. I think he longed to get over Paul. Right. Well, I take it as he longed to get away from Paul to get over Paul. Right. Like he's trying to get away from his need and desire for Paul. Yeah. I mean, that, that's basically it. We, he's suggesting that John has some some subconscious crush, infatuation, love for Paul that maybe he doesn't even recognize and that he has this desire to flee from him to get over him. But it doesn't matter how much he runs. It always stays there, right? He yeah. can never quite outrun it. For me personally, I don't think it's a matter of John, of John not being aware how much he loves Paul. I don't, I don't really think that's the issue. I think maybe the battle or the confusion um, is that John's belief in that love between them vacillates. Absolutely. Yeah, um, no, I, I absolutely agree that he seems to be sometimes disillusioned and so upset that mm -hmm. he wants to distance himself. I think that the, that from what we can tell, they almost may have had some kind of a, an acknowledged mm -hmm. special love between them. Again, not necessarily romantic, but the, I think that they both acknowledge that they have some level of spiritual, you know, special whatever you want, special love. connection, yeah. love and connection between them. And I think that this is something that Norman is picking up on is that how deeply John's feelings run. And I totally agree with you that it's not that it's not that it was unrecognized. It, it was just, I think when, when things fell apart, John was like, that was all a fucking lie. I can't believe I even believed you ever. Yeah. And then, then at some point when things get better, he believes again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the thing is that like, you know, love is an intangible, so you have to believe in it. Yeah. You know, if you, if you don't believe in love, then it doesn't exist. Well, I, I'm just thinking about the fact that it would be nice if it was that easy because, you know, I, I, I bet you a lot of people would like to just wish away or stop believing in their love and it go away. Yeah, I, I think that's the dilemma for John. You know, I think at some point he he decides, fuck this, I don't, I don't believe in it and I'm not going to believe in it anymore and I'm going to tell myself it doesn't exist and I'm going to strip all this away from, you know, I'm, te I'm tearing off the Beatles and burning them. Yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna just destroy the golden temple. You know that's the whole and theme be reborn. Of Plastic Ono Band. Yes, yes, that's what the whole album is about. Yes, and he re he's reborn with a new image, a new dream he can embrace, and and I I think that that actually speaks to Norman's next sentence. Right, he might have longed to get away from Paul, but he could never quite get over him. And I think that we wanted to raise this particular quote in this episode because we see the ballad of John and Yoko as maybe an attempt from John mm -hmm. to get over, to get away, to build a different future, a different brand from Paul, like his attempt to separate himself, even, even if it's not physically at first, you know, he's still within the Beatles, that that's a bit of a separation of identity to get away from Paul. But fundamentally, that it doesn't totally work because we see him continue to be obsessed with Paul throughout the 70s. So, you know, he can try and replace what they had. He can't escape it and he can't get over it. 
you know, I want to clarify that when we're talking about this bond between them, we're not talking about just a, a sexual attraction or anything like that. We're talking about this soulmate bond that exists between both of them and that John right. deeply believed in it. You know, and this refers to everything, the comp- the rivalry, the competition, the inspiration, mm-hmm. the love, the fact that he could count on, they could count on each other and were always there for each other and knew each other and saw each other as the reflection of each other. All of these things, um, I think, are combined in, you know, what Norman's calling homosexual adoration. It's, it's, it's not just a, a sexual level. It's, it's the, the combination that makes the soulmate relationship of Lennon McCartney. That's right. Now to address our second point about how John was allegedly done when he asked for the divorce, how that doesn't necessarily bear out and leads to an erroneous understanding of John's mindset. The first quote is from Derek Taylor, their press officer, the press agent. And it's like the first big press statement that Derek releases after the Beatles' official breakup. Right. So he made a statement right after Paul's album came out with the whole Paul quits the Beatles. But then this is this is sort of the first one that he does after that. The, the thing we have to remember is that Derek is a special confidant. Of John's. Of John's. Yes. Not only was... Derek, the one who tripped him out in May of 1968 when John was going through his identity crisis. Right. Helped rebuild his ego, as he said. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. But Derek was also the recipient of some tapes that John and Yoko made, apparently, in um, in 1969. John sent Derek some tapes and said, hang on to these in case Yoko and I ever break up. Yeah. Um, The traditional (laughs) romantic newlywed blackmail tapes (laughs) right (laughs) Um, (laughs) so Derek had those for safekeeping he he is a trusted confidant of of John's and he is also by the way the recipient of a excited postcard from John Lennon in 1975 saying that he's going to go see Paul in New Orleans right so when Derek says something about John's state of mind we take it seriously Derek knows where the bodies are buried. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, All the bodies. He, he definitely does. All the bodies. Derek also said, after John died, that the thing about the Beatles was that John really loved Paul, and Paul, in his own way, loved John, too. That was the first thing that I ever read that made me go, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Let me read that a couple more times. Yeah, me too. That made me look at that at everything differently and sort of pressure test all the garbage I've been fed over the years. Mm -hmm. All right. So he says in this press release, I guess the way it stacks up now and the way it was around the time when Paul dropped the big one is that he wants right out of it all. And they don't. George was greatly disappointed that Paul should come off like he was injured by Klein, their business manager, whom George believes to have greatly eased the effects of the present and ensured the safety of the future. George's view is, did you have to be so nasty? You can go so far, but you can never get back. And you can say things which get in the way forever. For me, I would be glad to play with all of us again. Okay, John's view is, okay, if this is it, this is it. We've all left the Beatles anyway. If Paul were to approach him and say, let's do it together again, 
he probably would. With no more words, he probably would do it. I think this is shocking because, well, first of all, we've got George saying that, you know, he'd be glad to play with all of them again. We've got some evidence that George was still in. But the really, really interesting point was John's point of view. Like we said, we, we trust that Derek has an excellent read on John. And John says that his point of view is if Paul were to approach him and say, let's do it together again, he probably would. With no more words, he probably would do it. Which is pretty shocking in the whole story of the Beatles' breakup. It's always told that John was done in you know September when he wanted the divorce. And, then, uh, and here's Derek saying in July of 1970 that John would go back in a heartbeat. Yeah. Like all Paul would have to do is ask. The, the important part of that the, that sort of jumps out at me is if Paul were to approach him. John may feel like the injured party at this point. You know, the fact that he he needs Paul to approach him suggests that he thinks the onus is on Paul to make the move. Uh, Derek's in some way playing a bit of an intermediary here mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by throwing out this information that if Paul just asked John nicely, John would do it again. And yet no moves are made at this point. Paul continues to push for the d dissolution of the Beatles. I'm not 100% sure that Paul doesn't already know that. To me, it's very plausible that Paul knows because John puts out a lot of signals. Yes, he does. Between yes. September 69 and April 70, John puts out a lot of signals that Paul can come back anytime. Please come back. Yeah, sometimes uh, I, he's bossy, sometimes he's inviting, sometimes he's seducing. You yeah, know, but in all these sometimes it's get your ass back here. Sometimes right. it's like please come back. Sometimes it's like maybe if you came back and acted right, <laughs> yeah, I might want to play ball. And sometimes it's, the, I'm going to steal all our tapes, so you have to come back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the point is, like, if he's not done, then he must be maneuvering for some other purpose. There's, there's some sort of underlying tug of war between John and Paul going on in this period. And it's a tug of war where Paul is surprisingly uh, immovable. You know, Derek makes one other point in his press release that Paul was committed until he started working on his own album, at which point he was done. We do believe that, you know, Paul shows a lot of signs of being completely committed and, and loving the Beatles and being committed to John. And then at one point, he seems to make a decision or ch have a change of mind or heart. And then he commits to this new position. John's playing games. Paul's reacting. I don't know if he's playing the same games. So we have that piece of information. We also have um, a piece of information from John Green. Who was John and Yoko's personal terror reader in the Dakota. He wrote a, a tell-all book, as, as, as many of John and Yoko's staff did. After right. John's death. And basically, you know, his, his book is full of like recounted conversations that he had with John while he was doing his cards or whatever. Right. And I mean, the only the reason that we take him seriously is that he had a lot of access to John and Yoko. Well, the, the thing about this particular quote is that it's it's eerily similar to Derek's quote. Right. That's what, what one thing that we noticed was a similarity of language 
which made it seem somewhat credible because we're assuming that, you know, that Green is not aware of a press release from. Yeah, he, he's not Derek digging Taylor. up like obscure Derek Taylor press releases <laughs> and then cribbing them. Right. <laughs> so in this passage, um, John is like kind of ranting or moaning about Paul and he, he tells Green the story that about how he asked for the divorce in the famous divorce meeting and then how Paul and Alan Klein talked him into not making an announcement and then John says, I was touched because I thought it was because he had faith that somehow, somewhere, everything would work out and we'd do it all over again. And then he goes on to say, I was touched all right. I was touched in the head because he turned around and fucked me with that press release. You know? <laughs> right. But um, th- those are my words, but not his but, um but the part that stood out here is this this part that's quoted. I thought he had faith that somehow, somewhere, everything would work out and we'd do it all over again. And so that shows us again that he was willing to be chased, romanced. It certainly doesn't reflect somebody who, you know, was like, I was done. I was out. I didn't care. And, and that's the thing is it's, it's in neither of these scenarios does it continue on. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, do it again. This actual term is something that we've spent some time thinking about because, you know, John had been, they had both been proposing ways for the Beatles to continue. But what John is saying is that let's start over again and do it again. And and that is almost like a recommitment. So I think that the green comment is really important because it suggests that John's divorce statement, well, you know, probably coming from something he felt at the moment, you know, like I think Mm -hmm. that he really did feel at that point, maybe like he didn't want to be part of it. But I also think it may have been a stunt or an ultimatum or an act to elicit a reaction. And, And I say this specifically because Green says that John was happy when he got a reaction from Paul which suggests to me that his end goal was not to separate them and to really get the divorce, but to really get Paul to react and do something. Yeah. Yeah. Because when Paul does something, he was happy. So if we know from green that John wanted a reaction from the divorce statement Mm -hmm. and we know from Derek that John was willing to go back to the beginning in 1970, not, not just continue was willing to do it all over again. This, to me, these two pieces of evidence support the fact that underneath it all, you know, John wasn't really envisioning a life without Paul or the Beatles. And that the, the divorce statement was not a decisive move, but rather a stunt or an ultimatum or an emotional reaction or a game that he was playing. We find these two pieces of evidence really useful, but even without them, fundamentally, when we look at the actual reality of Mm -hmm. the behaviors of what went on, like if we look at the, if we ignore these two pieces of evidence and we look at the bigger picture and the actions of all the players, fundamentally we know that John, George and Ringo fought really hard not to let Paul out of his contract with them. Right. Which again suggests just that, 
you know, that not, that the end goal was not to separate or destroy the Beatles. Okay, so having established that, let's go back to our story um, where we left off, which was the, the double weddings and the bed-in. And then we get back and John has written a song called The Ballad of John and Yoko, or most of the song. And he is, to quote Paul, on heat to record it as quickly as possible. Neither George nor Ringo were available to record it at this point, but there was enough goodwill between Paul and John at this point for him to rush over to Paul's place and for them to finish the, the song together. So, you know, we talked about this detente that they come back and they sort of had this, you know, special time where they got along. They had their mates and, you know, John seems to be happy that Paul is willing to support him. I think one of the things that helps is it is just the two of them. Maybe he's just sort of like, okay, Liz, uh, you know, I've turned the corner. This is my life. Paul is still here, but we're friends now and we're just going to be friends and we're going to work on a music and it's going to be fine. But at least after the weddings, a direction had been chosen and John seems to have embraced it with almost a manic devotion. I mean, they sound really happy on the record. Well, the, and the interesting thing is apparently they go and finish the song together. So this is Paul helping John write his tra his his ro romantic travelogue song. The beginning yeah. of his self uh, their, their mythologizing of, of their their romance, and and Paul's helping him do it. That's kind of sweet and symbolic. Well, Paul really does kind of co-sign it. He does. He does. He you know for the rest of his life he really supports the John and Yoko story. He really does. I mean, to this day he does. Yeah, he just says that John fell too in love, and you know we see we saw him in the Let It Be tapes being the supporter of theirs. So you know, even though for some odd reason John and Yoko decided to blame Paul later, the evidence suggests that he was pretty supportive of their relationship from the get-go. Yeah, and when they're on the brink of divorce in 1974 too. Right. You know, we see that Paul co-signed the two virgins by going and and advocating for it, for the cover, and putting his own words on the liner notes. And again, here he, you know, supports and advocates for the John and Yoko romance to be a thing, and does it, and it sounds, they sound terrific together. They, and they have a lot of energy, you know? You know, it was really smart, actually, to write that, because no matter what, you've always got oh, yeah. sort of a heading for their romance, The Ballad of John and Yoko. Oh yeah, and it's a Beatles song. Right. I mean, if Paul hadn't come through and made it a Beatles song. That just would have been John Lennon solo. What I, what I find interesting about this song is that he's starting to document their life. It's like they're embarking on something interesting that the world wants to know about. He's being a journalist, but putting it to music, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. I think he kind of, he described it that way. And I, I happen to love yeah. this song. It's great. But the one thing I didn't notice about it is it's not particularly romantic it's like all the things that they have gone through it's more of a you know what happened on our adventure yeah. versus, versus you know he doesn't say anything particular about yoko or you know how great she is or about their love or anything like that it's kind of like the, the you know yeah. the trials and tribulations of john and yoko yeah it's not like a romantic ballad it's like you know, a boy named Sue or something. Right, right. <laughs>
you know, when we look at the, the, the ballad of John and Yoko, really what are the tenets? Like what is the ballad of John and Yoko? It's, it's like fundamentally, I think the underpinnings of it are the fact that it's a creative, like this magical creative collaboration Mm -hmm. that it's, you know, that, that what they do is more meaningful than anyone else, (laughs) Yeah, you know, or certainly that the Beatles Yeah, and that it's based in this epic love story. Yeah. You know, that's kind of the ballad is that, you know, it's, it's like this magical collision of great artistic minds and collaboration yeah. and love and meaningful purpose. I mean, it's basically the story of the Beatles. It's a, basically the story of John and Paul, but with a sort of a romantic, you know, man and wife twist. Right. Which in some ways, this is what John is doing is that he is recreating a, his creative partnership. Like in his mind, I'm going to do it again, but I'm going to do it in a better way. You know, I'm going to marry the person and, you know, we're, we're going to be one identity. And, you know, so there's not going to be this competition between us and that we're going to package it like this. But you're right. I mean, all of those tenets stand for the Beatles, meaningful messages in the world, mm-hmm. some of the magical collaboration and, and love story. Mm-hmm. And an epic love story. I mean, that's uh, them. yeah, that's them. I mean, I mean, the John and Paul version is that it's like it's an epic love that um, because it's not sexual, it's it's like transcendent. It's it's like it's platonic in the classic sense of the word, like where it's um, it's of the spirit more than yes. the body. Right. Yes. So it's like this epic platonic love that they have. And then John and Yoko's like, well, fine. We have the epic platonic love too, but we're also super hot for each other. (laughs) Hotter than anybody has ever, like nobody can even understand our level of hotness. That's right. That's right. But we also are epic and platonic. So take that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We're also innocent virgins. And and we're super horny for each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so true. (laughs) Exactly. We're everything. We're yes. pure and very, very dirty. <laughs> you think you can beat us? You cannot. That's, yes. And I think that one thing that they do always do is position their work as being of a higher purpose. Like, you know, this is something that I think flows from Yoko to John is that, you know, this is real art that what we're doing is, is more meaningful. Yeah. That part. I mean, that's the part where I get a bit eye rolly because I definitely don't think the Beatles are any less important or any less sophisticated. (laughs) They're, you know, they're, they're no lesser than any of John Yoko stuff. You know, they, they like their causes. Yeah. There's, there's were more, um, there's were less subtle, and less, to to my mind, sort of less artsy, really. Because to me, when you when art is literal, I just it's not as good. To, I mean, that's kind of that loses the art of it for me personally. I agree. I mean, they switch sort of. I think that that was trendy at the time. Is like cause art, you know, it's right. like you need to have a, a be behind a cause, and that's more important. And and unfortunately. That's an idea that took hold yeah. with rock stars for like 40 years. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. which I find torturous because <laughs> I'd rather just be told a story and get the message. 
you know, yeah, or, exactly, or em- empathize exactly. with somebody and get the message. Because I think personally that you learn a lot through empathy. Like that's a very nice way of, of delivering a message. But yeah, so I mean, it's just different ways yeah. of communicating. Um, I'll take Blackbird over, you know, woman is the curse word of the world. Right. That's not my not my style. But yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. Or or another day. Oh yeah, and that that's that's a very interesting um, point to pull out. Is that Paul? You know, I think that this kind of shows the difference between Paul and John. Uh, you know, post Beatles is that Paul writes, I think, a very feminist song because it brings to life the um, experience of a woman. Yeah, and, and her internal Jesus life. protagonist, yeah. her internal life, her experience, and yet he doesn't talk about it. He doesn't do 300 interviews basically saying, I am a feminist writer, you know, whereas John and Yoko will write a song that is also feminist, but then they spend a lot of time talking and packaging. It's called the feminism song. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, like feminism is about feminism. (laughs) (laughs) I think that in some ways, John and Yoko were the smarter ones. They're the better marketers. Yeah, well, they're not afraid to dumb down a message. That's for sure. They, that is right. for sure. Yeah. End of part one. Intermission. <laughs>